So, if you can't tell, as I'm standing here on the stage, I'm roughly five foot eight. It's not that tall. It's not that short. If you think it's that short, you're wrong. It's not that short. I promise. So, I've never been the smallest guy, but I've never been the biggest guy either. And so, I don't know if you are actually able to say that you physically feel small next to other people, but I, I am not just in in general with everyone else, but because of the friends that God has graciously given me, he reminds me that I'm not the tallest person in the room, and I probably never will be. If I was smarter and better prepared, I would have the picture to show you, but when me and Destiny got married three years ago, we took a photo, as you do, of me and my groomsmen. We had eight, is that right, eight groomsmen, so um, somehow I found eight friends, and I had four guys that were standing on either side of me. I was flanked by my two best friends, both of whom have the name Jared, both of whom are about 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", maybe even taller, I don't really know. And I didn't think much of it when I took that photo. But when the photos came back in, and I looked, and we're just going, oh, man, what a beautiful wedding. Oh, that was a great day. Oh, look, these funny groomsmen pictures. And then it hit me that as I'm looking at this picture of me and my groomsmen with me in the middle, there's five foot eight Neil. And here is six foot three Jared. And here is six foot five Jared. So you can just imagine if you had two Corey Powells standing on either side of you and you're my size. I felt really, really small. And every time I look at that picture, I still feel really small. I feel really loved. They're all really good friends, but they're all much taller than me. And so whether or not you have tall friends, whether or not you are the tall friend, there are times in our lives where we feel small. I don't know if you've ever looked out at the stars. You know, I know that's a thing that people talk about doing. I don't know if anyone actually does it, but you look out at the night sky and you see the stars and the expanse. You feel small. There are these trees, you know, all across our country, especially think about the redwoods in California, that if you stand next to them, boy, you feel small. You just, you realize how tiny you really are compared to nature, compared to sometimes others. Maybe you feel small in certain situations. Somebody's made you feel small. Somebody has dressed you down at work and made you feel real small. You feel that insignificance. You ever felt like you're just you're just here, and does anybody ever really notice me? And tonight I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 90, and I want us to see that yes, we are small, especially compared not to really tall men, not to trees, not to stars, but to God. We are small, but that's okay because when we learn to see God for who He is when we learn to see ourselves for who we are and the reality we find ourselves in that we call life, we are able to find principles to live by. We're able to find petitions that we can pray that help us to find joy in our reality, no matter how tall you are. So join me as I read Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. 
You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So as we read this psalm, this is a psalm written by Moses. It's likely one of the older psalms that we have. And we know that we know that Moses, just based on what he writes here, this is a time of affliction. This is not a, a fun time to be Moses, to be Israel. They are facing some hard times. And it has caused them to reflect on the reality of death, the reality of their smallness, that we have a God who is everlasting to everlasting, and yet, God, we are dust. We will die. And not only will we die, we are made aware of our sin and how we perish because of your wrath. But ultimately, this psalm does take a hopeful tone where Moses wants to live rightly in light of reality. That is the message for us. And so there's some principles that I want us to see. The first is that God is an eternal refuge for us. Right there in verse 1, Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So you think about Moses, you think about Israel, what you think of is the wilderness. They literally did not have dwelling places. They had camps. They would get up. They would move. They would camp. They would get up and move again. For us, that's that's uncommon. I don't think anyone in here lives a nomadic lifestyle. Um, maybe you do. That's cool. But for most of us, we have homes that we go to at the end of every day. But God says in this passage that even beyond that, even beyond having a home, he provides an eternal home. He provides an eternal refuge because the reality is this. I could drive home tonight and my home could be burned down. I hope and pray that it's not. I hope and pray that never happens to anybody, but we know, unfortunately, that does happen. People lose jobs. People lose money. Their homes have to be sold. People find themselves down on their luck. The reality is no matter how much we plan, no matter how much we save, no matter how much we think that we are in control, life has a way of reminding us that we're really not. One of the friends that I'd mentioned earlier that is a giant compared to me, his home burned down while we were in college, and, and thankfully no one was hurt. Most of their stuff was okay. They they recovered as as well as anyone can whose home burns down, but it was still a traumatic experience, and it's still a reminder that we are just not in control like we like to think that we are. And think about what a home represents. What does it mean for God to be our dwelling place? If this is meant to be hopeful, what, is, what does this mean? It sounds good, but what does that mean for God to be a dwelling place? Think about what a dwelling place represents. For me, the first thing that comes to mind is safety. If you go to my home, 
in Gardendale, you'll find that it's locked in multiple places. The windows are shut. The doors are locked. It's air-conditioned, thankfully. Um, you know, Alabama power bill keeps going up. might not be uh, much longer, but right now it is. It's safe. It's secure. We're in a secure area. We have ways of taking care of ourselves. We have locks. It's secure. I don't have to worry about rain hitting me if it rains at night because I have a roof over my head. These are very basic things that sometimes I think we take for granted, but that is what a home represents is the ability that I can go to bed at night and know that, good Lord willing, I'm getting up in the morning and I'm not going to be soaking down wet from the rain. And nobody's coming in my house. And if they do, God's provided a way to take care of that too. Um, and so we have homes, but we recognize that Israel did not. And so this had a much more tangible meaning. But for us, this is what God represents. Our homes are safe. How much safer is God? Our homes are safe to a certain extent, right? Again, life has a way of reminding us. As we turn on the news every day, we find that homes are not maybe as safe as we want them to be. Terrible, terrible things still do happen. But we have a God who keeps us safe because we know that we belong to him. What's the worst thing that can happen to me? What's the worst thing that can happen to you if you're in Christ? You die, go be with him. You die, you go be with him. The safety and security that comes from knowing God as our father, that comes from knowing God as our God, is that nothing in this world really can touch me. It affects me. It's not to say that we have no sorrows, but it is to say that it ultimately cannot destroy me because all of the things that would have destroyed me have already been destroyed at the cross. I think about the identity that a home brings. What's one of the first questions when you meet someone that you ask? Where do you live? Where are you from? What kind of house do you live in? Are you in an apartment? Are you in a home? Townhome? Condo? It gives us a, a sense of identity. And for a lot of us, maybe that's it's foreign to think about, you know, what does that look like with, with God giving us identity? We think about all the different things that identify us from our careers to our family to our hobbies. Maybe we've never really understood what it means to let God give us that identity. But if God is our dwelling place, it is God who gives us our identity. Because it is God who lasts for eternity. It is not our homes. It is not our stuff. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So long before me to this generation and long after I'm gone, God will be a dwelling place for his people. He gives us that identity. Ultimately, in him, more than in anything else, that's what we are to be known by. Moses continues and talks about God being eternal and controlling our days. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I think we can think about eternity future. By the grace of God, we will be part of eternity future. You will live forever. What kind of blows my mind is, that blows my mind too. I haven't fully understood that. But what blows my mind really is the idea that God has always existed. There was never a point in which God didn't exist. Whereas in 1989, I didn't exist. There is a certain point in time in which Neil Embry didn't exist. And there will be a certain point in time in which while I will exist with the Lord, I no longer exist here on this earth. God is everlasting to everlasting. 
that should make us feel small. It's okay to feel small. You ought to because you're not God. And he controls our days. I want to remind you tonight, as morbid as it might be, and it's not the most popular message, you are going to die. You will die. I will die. I'm 31. I'm I'm hoping that it's not soon, but I will die. And we need to remember that. It isn't a popular message. This won't be the most streamed podcast. This isn't going to be the, you know, a great book deal. I wouldn't recommend going to a publisher and saying, hey, let's write about how everybody's going to die. Nobody's going to publish that book. But it's a message that we desperately need because it is reality. Whether we want to recognize it or not, that is our reality. And it's something that Moses is grappling with, that Israel is grappling with, that God, you return man to dust. You sweep them away as with the flood. They're like a dream. You know, think about a dream. It doesn't last long, right? Most mornings my dreams don't last long enough because I get woken up by an alarm clock. They're like the morning dew on the grass. You walk out 6 a.m., you see the dew on the grass, you come back from work and it's already gone. That, Moses says, is about what our life is in the grand scheme of things. You will most likely live less than 100 years. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of years before you. And there will probably be at least hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands of years after you. At the end of the day, your life is but a vapor. Your life is really short. And what we recognize from this passage too is is not just that life is short because death is real, but death is a result of our sin. Matthew Henry, in talking about this psalm, says it is common for man to think about death as being a result of nature, that it's nature gone wrong, that it's our bodies breaking down, it's our bodies decaying. And while that is true to a certain extent, biblically we understand that death comes because we are sinners. It is a consequence of our sin. It's what God tells Adam and Eve in the garden. Even in Christ, we still die. Thank the Lord that we wake up with him, but we do still die. Your physical form here will perish. Moses is facing a situation where he's face to face with his sin and his own mortality. And it's, it's, it's displeasing to him. He recognizes the despair and yet it leads him deeper and deeper into God. And so now that, um, I've depressed you with talk of death, let's, you know, maybe move on, not past death, but how do we live in light of it? We need to understand that these principles are not heeded by the world around us. It's important as we look at this psalm, as we look at what God's word has to say on this subject, that we take our worldview from God's word. These things are not heeded by the world. This world rejects the idea of someone else being sovereign. This world rejects the idea that we are not in control. We plan and we save and you've got to jump to this job. You've got to jump to this opportunity. And man, if you're not investing in crypto right now, you're an idiot and you're going to, you know, you're going to lose all that money in the future. If you don't do this, 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 and this, your kids aren't going to have money. You've got to do this, that, and the other. All of this planning, all of this work, you've got to put in 60 hours a week to get the life that you want. You've got to, if you want a vacation, you've got to work harder, harder, harder. And I'm not saying that hard work is bad. It's not an excuse to not show up tomorrow. But, again, we're faced with the reality. In 70 years, it's probably not going to matter. 
in 70 years, all the money that you leave behind, while it matters to an extent for your family, you won't see it. All the things that you poured your life and your soul into, they won't be here. But how far do we run away from death? Our culture is obsessed with finding ways to delay it. We have machines that can keep us alive endlessly. We have, we are constantly doing more and more science to try to prolong our life every day. There's an article out about whether or not coffee is good for you or bad for you. I think it changes every week, but it's one day coffee gives you two extra years of living. The next day you're going to die five years sooner. I don't know. I'm just going to keep drinking it um, because God is sovereign, not whatever science agency makes up those rules. But we need to understand the biblical reality versus what our culture wants to be reality because it's not a popular message. This isn't something that's going to make you a very popular coworker to go and talk about these things with your friends. But it is the biblical reality. It is what we face. Moses understands that. Moses understands that we need to grapple with death. We need to grapple with the wrath of God, with our sin, with the fact that there is a God who is bigger than us and he has a claim on our lives. And so we get into, in verse 12, we get into the petitions that uh, finish out this prayer. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I want to point out as, as we dive in here that these are prayers to God. This is not Moses promising, God, I'm going to do this. This is Moses crying out to God, God, if I'm going to live well in light of this reality, I need you. God, if I'm going to live the life that you want me to live, even if this short blur of a life, I want to live well, but God, you've got to help me do it because otherwise I will fail. Moses, who is far closer to God than I would think that I am, who is certainly a man of God if there ever was one, Moses recognizes that he is in need of grace to live rightly. How much more then are we in need of grace? And so we look at these, yes, as things to seek, but we look at these as things to pray for. We pray for the grace of God. We pray for the grace of God to help us seek him to live rightly. Because again, we want to look at our reality. We want to look at the situation we're facing and say, let's live rightly. Let's live the way God's intended us to live. And that starts with numbering our days. It starts with accepting the simple fact that you are going to die. But your life here does count. God has given it to you for a reason. God has given you the amount of years that he has given you to make a difference for his kingdom, to make a difference for him, to know him in this life, and to live the way that Christ calls us to live, to live holy, to do less than that, is to tell God that life doesn't matter. And the things that will matter 15,000 years from now really don't matter. So how do we get this heart of wisdom? We number our days. If you want to be wise, it starts with understanding that you're not going to be here forever. And so how many people might delay coming to know Jesus because, oh, I'll, I'll do that when I'm 65. I'll do that when I'm older. I'll get around to right living before I die. I'll get around to going to church someday. Maybe I don't have time to talk about Jesus right now. I've got more important things to look at, to take care of. The Bible says you don't have 
that time, to number your days, is to place as first importance in your life the things the Bible places first importance on. And I think that we we so often get caught up in the day-to-day, I know that I do, get caught up in the day-to-day of work and chores and errands and parenting, and, and those are all wonderful things. They're good, godly things. But we can do all of that and just kind of stick God in a corner. We can ignore the command to share our faith. We can ignore our time with Him. We can ignore chasing after holiness. And all of a sudden, we might look like decent people, but we still look like the world because we are not putting the kingdom of God first in our lives. When we number our days, we recognize, God, I'm only here for a short time, so let me make the most of it and let me do it right. We also want to seek satisfaction in God. I love... I love verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. What would it look like in your life if you woke up every day satisfied in the full knowledge that the God of the universe loves you? How would it change our relationships with our spouse, with our children, with our parents, with our coworkers and our friends and our neighbors? What would that look like to be satisfied in God? How would it change the way we spend our money? the way we spend our time, the things that our heart chases after. The biggest danger for most of us as Christians is not that we're going to run headfirst into horrible sin that would make the front page of Newsweek. The biggest danger is that we're just going to slip into kind of a mindless Christianity that shows up on Sundays, maybe on Wednesdays, but really doesn't have time for the things of God. And this, this word is imploring us to take seriously the call to be satisfied. And God, Moses says, God, I'm going to die. My sin is real and it's caused death. So while I'm here, please help me to know how much you love me and let me be satisfied in that. Let me be driven by that. That is what we have to seek satisfaction in because the things of this world will not satisfy you. You are here for a short time and the world around you wants you to waste it, chasing after fame chasing after money and status, chasing after this idea of a legacy that only God can, can give you. Only God can satisfy you the way you were meant to be satisfied. We don't want to waste the days that God has given us seeking after lesser things. John Piper tells the story at the beginning of his book, don't waste your life about a couple who had saved up all this money, I guess, over their life and they retired and they lived maybe in Rhode Island, somewhere in the Northeast, sailed on a yacht and they lived the last 20 something years of their life. They hung out on a boat all day and they collected seashells and that was it. For the last 20 years of their life, the highlight of their day was drinking mimosas, collecting seashells, getting tan, and then they died. And Piper makes the point that at some point this couple had to stand before God who asked them, what do you have to show for the life that I gave you? And they would have pulled out of their pockets and said, Lord, look, seashells. And I don't, you know, I'm not God, but I I don't think that that's what he's looking for. And it would be sad for me, 
for you. You have things that threaten to take the place of God in your life. When you stand before God one day and he says, what did you do with the life that I gave you? We're redeemed by Christ, but we are redeemed, meaning we've been bought back. We have a mission now with the time we have left. What did you do with that time? Did you waste it? Did you chase after money and status? Did you chase after comfort at the expense of helping others and sharing your faith? Moses does pray for good days. We know we're going to have bad days. Moses is and Israel. Moses and Israel are afflicted in this passage. You might not tonight feel like you're in a battle. You might not feel like you're being afflicted. Things might be good. Um, personally, things are good for us. I don't necessarily feel afflicted as I was reading this. It was hard to get in that mindset. But we know what it is to be afflicted, don't we? We know what it is to feel hard days. And we know how much this life can hurt us, even as Christians. We know how much life can hurt. And Moses just prays, God, give me some good days. Give us as many good days as we have bad days. And, y'all, there ain't nothing wrong with praying for good days. We're called to trust God in the bad days, but we also need to rejoice in those good days. We need to rejoice in the grace that God gives us to enjoy this life. And one of the pleasures now as a father is, is seeing Mary Kenneth just run around the backyard, run around the house, and and play. And you know, I just remember there was a night not too long ago where Destiny had cooked dinner. We had and had dinner as a family. MK was playing. We were loving on her. We're watching a, a movie or TV show or something. And my work is done, and I'm just able to relax and enjoy the family that God's given me. And I said, God, this is good. I don't deserve this, but this is good. This is something to rejoice over. These things, again, I think that we take for granted. Your life is short. Don't take those things for granted. Don't take for granted the joys that God gives you in the everyday. Because they're not guaranteed. We seek his grace to join in his work. Moses says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Establish, Lord, the work of our hands. We want to see God at work. Do you actively seek to see God's work in your life and in the world around you? Do you wake up hungry to see what is God doing at Sharon Heights? What is God doing in Brookside and Gardendale and Birmingham or whatever community you might find yourself in? We want to see God at work. Moses is saying, if our time is short, let's join in the work that's actually going to matter 15,000 years from now. That's not to say that everyone is going to be in vocational ministry. You're not. I mean, Lord knows we need people that build roads and bridges. Those are important. I'd like to drive over nice roads. We need people who serve as dentists and doctors. We need all that. But that even in those secular callings, you are joining in the work of God to usher in a new kingdom that will last. In the face of the death that we all are going to face, God promises that there is life after death. There is a new kingdom coming. Why would I work for a kingdom then that's going to pass away? Why would I live my life for something that 15,000 years from now will not matter? If I spend my time chasing after seashells or knowing everything there is to know about the Atlanta Braves baseball team or buying as many books as I can, I beg you if you come to my house, don't look in the office because it's bad. I'll just feel like I need to repent again. 
buy too many books. My wife is constantly getting on to me. And ultimately, they're not bad things. None of these are bad things. But they can so easily take the place of God in our hearts and of the kingdom in our lives. Our focus must be on that which will last. And all of this is by grace. Moses closes this this psalm and says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Reality is, the news is bad. You're going to die. And there's more bad news. There's nothing you can do about it. It's because of your sin. And if you want to live rightly, hey, that's great. But other bad news is you can't do it on your own. Um, you know, there's a lot of bad news in the Bible. There's a lot of bad news in our lives and our world. But there's also the good news. There is the good news of God's grace. Moses understands that to live rightly, to live in light of the reality, okay, of God's bigness, of my smallness, of his protection and sovereignty and his call on my life to return to him in death one day, in order to live rightly in light of that, I need God's grace. We need God's grace first and foremost to be reconciled to him. We need God's grace to live for him. We need God's grace to join him in his work. None of what we do as Christians is ever just by our own effort. You will never advance far in your Christian walk if you are solely relying on yourself. I promise you will not. And you will not be able to live rightly in the reality in which you live, which is that you will be dead in 100 years without God's grace. And the grace that we see in the gospel is this, that yes, we do die because of our sin. All of our days do pass away because of God's wrath, under God's wrath. The years of our life, they're not many. But thanks be to God that while Moses says, you have set, God, you've set our iniquities before you, the reality is on this side of the cross, we can look back and say, Moses, there's good news. God took that iniquity and he set it on Christ. He took my iniquities. He didn't set it before me. He set it on him. That we can on this side of Calvary say there is hope. Yes, I'm still going to die. Yes, this world is still going to be full of toils and troubles. But I can live forever. Thanks be to God for the gospel. That Christ has come to live the life that we could not live He's died the death that we should have died so that we can be restored to the God who is our eternal refuge, to the God who has been and always will be, to the God who does call us to join in his work, to live for that which matters. We can only do that when we grasp that we matter now in Christ. If it were not for Christ, none of this matters. But because of Jesus, it all matters. Because of Jesus, everything you do matters. Yes, you're going to die. Yes, your life is short. But you have a chance in the time that you have to make a difference for the kingdom of God because the grace of God has reached down on you and given you new life and new meaning. You have a chance to live not for things that will fade away, but to live for a kingdom that will last forever. To fall in love with a king who will last forever. To find your joy and your satisfaction in something that the world cannot manufacture. 
no matter how far we advance technologically, we're not going to be able to replace the joy that comes from knowing that the God of the universe loves me and adopts me and saves me and he likes me. There is nothing the world can offer that gives us that same satisfaction. And that is all because of the grace of God. And that is what allows us to live these lives that matter. So tonight, think about the reality you face. But thank God for the grace that he has given you. That in the time that we do have, we have a chance to make it count. And a chance to make it matter. Because we know him. Because he knows us. Because this life isn't all there is. We have a chance to live for what truly matters. And we have a chance to bring others into that kingdom. So I, I hope tonight that we that you, that you leave here praying as Moses did for wisdom. To number your days. To live rightly. To, to be satisfied in the Lord. To join him in his work. To live a life that matters. Because, friend, you, you are small. I'm small. Not just physically. I'm, I'm just small in the big, big universe that God has created. But because of the grace of God, we have meaning, and we have life in him, and we have a purpose, and we can make every day count. And you pray for us, and then we will be dismissed. Father God, thank you that you reach down to us. God, you are God. You are from everlasting to everlasting. We cannot fathom your bigness. We, we lack the words to to describe you and, and just in awe of who you are. Lord, in light of that, we do feel small. And Lord, we recognize that that this world, this life has trouble and that we will one day perish. But God, thank you for the grace that you give us that we can live forever with you. Thank you for the chance to have grace in this life to live rightly, to have wisdom, to know you, to be satisfied in you, to live lives that matter. And I pray tonight that, that we would all, all of us, be reminded again and be challenged again to live lives that matter, to make each day count, to number our days to join you in your work, to seek you, Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God. For however long you have us here, Lord, as we look forward eagerly to the kingdom that is coming, to the world that is to come, where we will be with you. Lord, be with us as we go from this place. Help us to represent you well in all that we do. It is in Christ's name that I pray.